Welcome back to the CityCast podcast. Today is our episode of our climate change series, Resilient Cities, where students interview climate leaders both around the world and here in Hamilton about what the city and residents can do to create a more climate-resilient Hamilton. Today, we'll be continuing our conversation with Tanya Lang, watershed planning strategist from the city of Calgary, about her work in flood resilience. Calgary is a beautiful city of rivers in Canada's west, which in 2013 experienced a catastrophic flood, which severely damaged shops, homes, and critical infrastructure. The lasting emotional, financial, and health impacts of the 2013 flood, which killed five people, are still felt today. However, Calgarians have demonstrated grit and resilience, and in rebuilding their city, they've learned valuable lessons. Through the efforts of people like Tanya, today's Calgary is a global leader in flood resilience. Although not uniquely situated like Calgary is downstream of the snow-capped Rockies during the spring thaw, Hamilton also is not safe from flooding. In recent years, water levels on Lake Ontario have reached record highs, completely flooding the Toronto Islands, and in Hamilton, this has made swamps out of our lakeshore trails, swimming pools out of our basements, and massive splash pads out of our lower city parking lots. As climate change progresses, and as rainfall becomes heavier and more erratic, the flooding will only get worse. Hamilton, like all other waterfront cities, needs a flood resilience plan to both prevent flooding and prepare citizens for it. And for our ideas today, we look to Calgary. We'll let Tanya introduce herself. My name is Tanya Lang. I'm with the uh, Water Resources Department at the City of Calgary. I'm a strategist in a group of people who work on our flood resilience plan. So I've been working on uh, flood resilience since about 2014. So hi, Tanya. Thank you so much for joining us again. We're excited to learn about what uh, Calgary is doing to prevent another flood. Our first question, can you explain, um, give a little bit of context about why there's a need for a flood resilience plan in Calgary and why you think other cities should have one as well? Sure, well, you, you probably heard about Calgary's big flood in 2013. It was one of the biggest natural disasters in Canada with over $4 billion of damage in Southern Alberta as a result of that flood. You know, it shut our downtown, it impacted a lot of people, about 80,000 people were evacuated, impacted thousands of homes and, and businesses. So that was a really big driver for us, obviously. Before then, we had been working on, on um, flood mitigation, but not, not to the same extent. So that 2013 really gave us the impetus to go a lot further and that's when our team kind of came together and I was hired along with some others to put more resources behind it. So because we have two rivers in Calgary and our downtown is also centered on our river, this was also a, a big reason that we need a flood resilience plan. We have lots of neighborhoods that have been established along the rivers as Calgary's been built. Um, and we know that with climate change, there's gonna be more floods. Uh, there'll be probably larger floods and, and more frequent floods. So that's why cities um, need to manage all, all types of flooding, uh, river flooding like, like the 2013 one, but also those more localized storms that are the cause of urban flooding or 
what we call stormwater flooding. That's common to all cities, no matter where they are, because we're built on you know hard surfaces, impervious surface, there's always gonna be the risk of flooding. And really having a flood plan, why other cities should have one is so that they can obviously protect people, uh, people's safety. It can help us better protect our like critical infrastructure, our transportation networks. It helps us protect businesses and, and people's homes. So lots of good reasons to have a have a directed flood plan. That's interesting to mention that like regardless of where cities locate, a flood plan is important. Even if they're not next to a body of water, I guess stormwater management is still really important to prevent backlogging into the people's homes. Exactly. Yeah. So generally, what are the major components of Calgary's Flood Resilience Plan? So our flood plan, and I'll just um, be clear that it's really focused on, we do some stormwater management, but this one that I'm talking about today is really focused on our river flood planning. And though the stormwater and river flooding can intersect, especially when we're having big floods, but this one is primarily focused on, on river flooding. So we take a, like a combined multi-layered approach of uh, three kind of main components that work together to build resiliency. So the first one is uh, upstream flood protection. So upstream of Calgary on the Elbow River, that's our smaller river, the province is working on getting a, a dry dam built to help mitigate future flooding on that river. On the Bow River, there are a number of reservoirs that are operated for hydroelectricity by Carmel Transalta, and they can help us with flooding through their upstream operations. And there's also a, a proposed uh, dam for, for that river as well. And then on the community side, we have in the past have constructed flood barriers and done some work on our own reservoir to help um, mitigate floods in, in certain communities, low-lying communities that are particularly at risk. And then to complement those kind of infrastructure and operational mitigation, we have property level flood protection. So these are things like flood policy, uh, building regulations, and other things people can do kind of at the property level. So it's really a combined approach. It's not one silver bullet that will help build resiliency to flooding, just like all resiliency. It's a multi-pronged approach. Could you explain a little bit more about the policies? Yeah, so the policies, um, what we did in after 2013 was we made some small changes to our land use bylaw policy to like remove some grandfathering and to require uh, folks to protect properties when they're doing major renovations, for example, like you would have to move your mechanical or electrical stuff up above the one in a hundred kind of flood level. So that's that's one thing that we've done. And we're actually taking another run at, uh, at flood policy presently. And so that's just getting started. So it will, it will start to look at flood policy quite uh, in depth and do some more work on that as we are having some new flood maps that are being released by the province that are more, more up to date now. So that'll be a lot of work going forward. So is it all new developments that can't be built in the 100-year flood zone, or are you requiring existing infrastructure to move out of the flood zone? 
Well, this is such a tough one to explain. <laughs> so there's the floodplain and, and you've got the highest risk area, which is called the floodway. And we would not allow new development in the floodway. However, if you are already built in the floodway and if you're doing a major renovation or want to rebuild, it would have to be within that same footprint and then you would have to protect to a certain level. And then there's the flood fringe area where similarly, if you're doing a major renovation or something, we would require that electrical mechanical to be moved up. Future policies could require people to build differently. For example, we have a, a neighborhood that's like inner city and we required them to not have living space in the risk zone. So they built like garages there and then your main living space would be above the garage. So things like that. And then in, in greenfield spaces, it's a lot easier to do planning to make the communities more flood resilient because there's nothing there. So they can do things like build up fill so that it's higher than the, than the flood zone. You can require further setback areas. So like have a buildings built in further setback and uh, do other things like that. So Again, it's not like one size fits all. We have to think about what's in those areas to begin with and then how to make the most of, of new communities. So it's definitely still a work in progress and we're working on what are some of the best things we can do in the future for that. So what, what inspires that? Do you look towards other cities? How do you determine what the best practices are? Yeah, for sure. We, we look at what other cities have done um, and what's what's worked best for them. So cities within Alberta, um, across Canada, the States and elsewhere. Oh, Calgary is also, you know, like everywhere kind of unique. So what we will do is work closely through stakeholder engagement. So with people who live in the, in the flood risk areas presently and the development industry certainly to um, get their insights and and then we work with consultants and with different city departments to build this out and of course our council we want to see like what's their appetite the other thing to consider is that because we've got all of these other structural and operational mitigations in play what happens to a neighborhood once it's protected by a barrier do we then perhaps look at relaxing some of those requirements so a lot of things for us to consider. That sounds like a lot of people to talk to. It's a multi-year thing, you know, it, it doesn't overnight. Right. We've been working on it since 2013. Yeah. Then the policy thing we've kind of taken a pause on because we were more focused on getting those critical like infrastructure and operational mm -hmm. projects done. And the policy is it's really a long game and you don't see the effects of your policy for probably many years right especially in the established neighborhoods because it's like you're not going to force everyone to to do something it, it happens like as they renovate yeah so it's a much longer game yeah right. it's more of a regulation right and less of like incentive to develop properly with blood resilience in mind it's 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 written into bylaws that that you have to um develop that way right yeah yeah to a certain extent i'll give an example though of a greenfield area so that hasn't been built yet um 
we worked with the developer to come up with kind of like a, a triple bottom line. So looking at social, economic, environmental factors that could make that area um, more resilient to flooding in the way that they design or have setbacks and, and protecting riparian areas, but they will still be, you know, profitable to them. So that wasn't a strong hammer as it was like a, a collaboration. So there's, there's many ways to approach these. Hmm. So about infrastructure, you talked a little bit about fill. I was wondering how you ensure that uh, your infrastructure that, that's being built isn't damaging the natural environment. I imagine that if you put fill in, the like, water will go somewhere else instead. So how do you kind of manage that? So within Calgary, a lot of the places where we have to build flood mitigation is, I would say, somewhat disturbed anyways, because it is within the inner city. But we definitely try to incorporate natural features. We do bioengineering, so looking at including plantings and other like natural components when we're doing like that like erosion control or building building up banks to make them incorporate with what's already there uh, we definitely have environmental requirements obviously like legislated requirements and fisheries protection requirements or, or fisheries compensation if we need to do something somewhere how can we protect habitat or fisheries elsewhere how do you ensure that the dams that you built are not damaging the environment? In terms of upstream, the city isn't building that stuff. That's the province. So, for example, the Springbank uh, Dry Reservoir. Yeah, there's been opposition. Absolutely. It's on private land. So the, the province has done a, a lot of engagement in them. There's uh, provincial and federal requirements for hearings and doing like an environmental impact assessment. So all of those kind of regulatory things are in place to make sure that it has the least impact for the greatest benefit. And in fact, the reason they chose that that Springbank area is because they first looked at two other locations and, and did a comparison of these three locations to figure out which one would be the best from that kind of that sustainability triple bottom line perspective. So yeah, from from the very beginning, always striving to have the least impact on, on the environment and communities for the greatest return. I had a question regarding some of the engagement that is required. And also I was curious about some of the most vulnerable people in the society. What are the differences you've noticed maybe in engaging with them versus those that might not be impacted as much? What are the key differences you have noticed while carrying out like either enacting legislation or, you know, just even engaging with them regarding flood resilience? Yeah, good question. I, I mean, I'll be honest from our engagement and, and we've done lots of engagement on, on different projects. So I'm trying to think of uh, some good examples. The engagement we've done on our infrastructure projects, we try to make it accessible so that people feel that they can participate in engagement. But I will say that we have some very strong stakeholders who are really good at advocacy and um, have a lot of technical background. I'm thinking of the people who live along the river, who have their homes along the river, like they're generally very aware. They have a high awareness and a, and a high education about 
blood and, and a high stake in it. Whereas some of the more vulnerable populations, they may not own a home. In 2013, the flood affected some of our shelters and seniors at risk, but there definitely were agencies that helped those folks more. We, we don't tend to hear their voices as much as we, we probably should. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, I, I, I was just curious about that because uh, I'm assuming like for cities building and uh, building their plans, it would be an important consideration and to kind of get more people involved in that process that might not necessarily have their voices heard. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I mean, our flood resilience plan does aim for equitable protection, meaning that we aim that all neighborhoods would be protected appropriately. So that's one way we do try and, and build equity in. I, I, it might not be the exact equity that, that you're talking about, but certainly, yeah, there, there's work to do on that. It tends to be the people who have a, a more direct ownership uh, of, of those properties that are, that are being protected. But our flood resilience plan does aim to protect the safety of everyone so that everyone would be less vulnerable to the impacts of flooding. So if we build that downtown barrier, well, that's going to protect those people that stay at the um, drop-in center or some of the seniors' homes. It's also something to consider definitely through this um, policy work that we're doing is should you have daycares built in flood risk areas, even if you have protection? Maybe not. Should you have, you know, people that are uh, hard to um, evacuate, like seniors or schools or, or things like that, like vulnerable uses, is something definitely to consider through the policy. I'm just curious if you have any, like a, an evacuation plan or any shelters in, in the case of a flood. Or... Oh, yeah. Big yeah. time. Um, we have uh, a Calgary um, Emergency Management Agency. And uh, we work quite closely with them on like the forecasting side of things. But um, that emergency management agency gets kicked into to high gear if, if we think that a flood could be coming. And they have plans for, for people to be evacuated and where they should go and um, where they can be housed and where they can be helped. And they work very closely with agencies like uh, the drop-in centers or um, other, other social agencies, the Red Cross, et cetera, to, to make sure that vulnerable populations and, and anyone who is in, in the flood risk area can be supported during evacuation. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of people who that's like their full-time job, not just flooding, but other kinds of emergencies. And it's a similar kind of approach to, to different types of agencies, but yeah. So do you take care of getting the word out that there's a flood that's going to be happening or is that another agency? It is the province that um, is responsible for that. We work really closely with the province, but they are the ones that have uh, an alert system. Uh, it's really, it's their jurisdiction, but we share a lot of forecasting information with them. If, if an event is happening, we're in constant communication with them. How do you get the message out? They are, are kind of tasked with message out. So you can have like cell phone alerts or 
um, other public uh, communications on the radio or TV, those types of things. And then of course our folks are available for like media. Oh, so yeah, I, I say it's them, but, but really we are involved in getting the word out in any way we can. If there's, you know, with the evacuation, we have to have folks going door to door. Mm. Right. To, to get people to leave. So currently, what stage would you say your flood resilience plans are at and where do you see them going in the future? Based on the policies and regulations that are in place now, where do you go from here and how do you improve on that for the future? Yeah, so when we started this, we did kind of a damage assessment of, of Calgary at the kind of present state. So what are, what are all the, the cost of damages? And at this point with the mostly infrastructure and operational stuff that we have implemented, including some uh, raising the gates at our, our reservoir and, and doing those flood barriers that I talked about and the upstream operations, we've reduced our risk by about half from 2013. So we've put like a ton of effort into getting there. So the next big piece is that provincial upstream reservoir that I talked about that will be on the Elbow River, and that will significantly reduce our damages uh, on the Elbow River and, and a bit of downtown. So that's a next, that's a huge undertaking. That's a big next step. Um, completing some of our community barriers is also a next step. And um, looking upstream on the Bow River, the province is looking at a concept for a new reservoir on that river. And that one is, is really still in the conceptual stage. It's like a $500 million project. So yeah, that one's just getting studied right now, but that would, if, if it gets implemented, take care of a lot of risk. And then, as I mentioned, that policy piece that we're just sort of starting to to um, scratch the surface on that'll be a big focus for us as well so i know you guys have a plan for is it the eau claire promenade and the downtown flood barrier um and it looks beautiful so it, yeah. to describe it to some of our listeners it's it's essentially like a walkway along the river but it has a flood wall built into some of the benches i believe it looks gorgeous so it looks very seamless so I was wondering what the process of planning that was and what goes into a good downtown flood barrier um, that blends seamlessly into the urban environment. Yeah, yeah, you described it perfectly. It is, um, it's at the heart of our downtown. So it's a really well-used public realm and has been for many years. And um, it connects bikeways and pedestrian pathways and gets people access to some parks in the area. It's a really busy place where people congregate. It was intended to be a public realm improvement project and it happened to be just really good timing for us um, wanting to build that flood barrier. So multiple city departments came together to make that happen our parks department and of course our urban planners and our river engineers came together with the community and consultants and other designers to figure out how to make that barrier blend seamlessly into the public realm. Before the barrier was there, there was 
kind of sporadic seating, but now, as you've described, it's a big, long, beautiful kind of artistic bench that serves a dual purpose of being a flood wall and also somewhere where people can kind of relax and, and congregate. And most people probably wouldn't even know that that barrier is a flood wall. They might just think it's a bench. And uh, the other cool thing about it is that because it is such a busy spot, parts of the barrier help separate the bike traffic from pedestrian traffic. So it also kind of helps with that for safety and, and, and moving people around. People use it as a commuter path as well. It's a great project. And I personally, like as a Calgarian, use it to commute and to go and meet people. And especially in the summer, it's very well-loved. That kind of ties into, I guess, a question that we had about how other cities can improve their existing waterfronts. So in Hamilton, we also have like a waterfront trail, but that trail doesn't have a flood wall. And looking at other flood walls, some of them are pretty ugly. It's, it's really cool to see how Calgary's done it. I, I was wondering if you do any sort of replanting of natural vegetation along that waterfront strip. Our um, waterfront, there's a lot of concrete um, and a lot of riprap. I was wondering how you think other cities can approach it. If they don't have space for like a promenade like Calgary does, how else can they try to manage a waterfront in their pre-developed areas? We definitely do a combination of approaches. So we have riprap, we have some concrete type of barriers there, like the like the, that flood wall or, or bench. Um, but we also do try and do where, where it's feasible for, for design to include native plantings. And I mentioned bioengineering, so applying engineering design principles to natural areas. So that kind of combined approach. Yeah, so I guess you, ha you have to do it where it's, where it's feasible. The other thing that I would say is what has helped us be successful is to get external funding to help incorporate these types of things. So we've been able to get funding from the province through programs that value that kind of watershed protection or putting in natural flood and, and riparian protection. And so we've gotten access to grants like that from the province or from, from the feds. And that's a really important way that the cities can actually make these things happen. How do you ensure that the changes that are being made are locally inspired? Like it's local industries are kind of involved. How do you ensure that that happened? And what kind of experts did you reach out to in building up your plans? Yeah, when we built our, our flood resilience plan, we actually convened an expert management panel to advise the development of this plan. And those experts were actually weren't just local because we were looking for people who had had this experience elsewhere or who had done emergency management or other kind of water issues. But we also did try and draw on local folks who, who know our watershed very well and, and can help advise on that. The other thing we did was we purposely went out and asked for a citizen kind of advisory group. So we uh, recruited people from flood affected areas and from non-flood affected areas. And we also wanted the environmental uh, protection perspectives on that uh, advisory group. 
so yeah, a combination of, of different things to get that kind of local expertise. Going through that process has definitely built our capacity, like as a municipality, and we're constantly building our capacity through education and through learning from others and then applying it to the Calgary context because we speak to our citizens and we try to understand all of the things that concern our citizens. And in terms of building community capacity and, and having folks understand what their flood risk is and how they can build their own personal resiliency. Well, first of all, we have a seasonal flood awareness program and, and outreach where we do a number of things to educate folks and, and build awareness. Right now, we're looking at a more comprehensive program to kind of build what are the best ways for people to build their personal flood resiliency and um, ways that kind of work for them. Hamilton also has a lot of properties on the waterfront. Yeah, looking at how to incentivize them to flood proof is, I think, something that the city of Hamilton should work on. I think other cities have sort of a program that incentivizes homeowners to plant natural vegetation in their backyards to create like that natural flood buffer. I'm wondering yeah. if we have something like that or it's looking into it. We don't have any like incentive programs per se where we would like reimburse people for that kind of thing but we do have education programs we work with and support some local initiatives to do things like rain barrel sales or other things to encourage people to do yeah native plantings uh zeriscaping drought but um to do education for folks but yeah it would be interesting as as part of this research that we're doing right now to see what uh what impacts incentives could have but yeah we definitely have like education and outreach programs and we do have some some bylaws around sloping of lots and, and lot level drainage but yeah no incentive programs at this point based on the challenges you faced while creating the plans maybe if you can speak to that and how or first tell us what they might have been and how other municipalities could avoid similar challenges we faced a, a number of challenges. You know, when we started this, the 2013 flood was really raw for a lot of people. And it's a traumatic event. You know, some people lost everything. So what I would say is really important is that listening and, and empathizing with people. I mentioned that land use bylaw that we rapidly changed after the flood and we were first intending not to do engagement because the idea was, well, this is for public safety. We need to just push this through. And there was some outrage about that. And what we learned was, no, you can't just push things through that, that affects um, people and their livelihood and their, and their homes. So we had to kind of go back and, and do some, some pretty rapid engagement to understand what were the issues that people had with that. So that would be a big learning, I think, for us is to ensure that you do comprehensive community engagement listen to people, get champions. And um, like we've done a lot of relationship building with our stakeholders to build that trust and have open and transparent communication. It takes more time and it takes a lot of resources and efforts, but that's something that has been really important to our success. That's a good one to, to emphasize, I think. 
I think at the end of the day, it's that the community is at the core because the changes you're putting in place are going to be impacting these people. So reaching out to them would be essential in designing a new plan for your city, for sure. Yeah, you couldn't do any of these components, whether it's the structural mitigation or policy without putting yeah, the community, like you say, at at the heart of that. And it's just good practice because that infrastructure is going to be there for a very long time. And so is policy going to impact people? Yeah. Talked about trust and um, a Hamilton example is we've had a four-year, 24 billion liter sewage leak into a river that fed into a class one marsh. Um, And so I think the trust between the city and residents about water is kind of kind of broken. They did studies to see whether or not remediation has to happen. And um, they found that there's no use in cleaning it up because it didn't even change the water quality that much, which speaks to how bad the water was to begin with. So I was wondering what you can do to regain the trust of residents and stakeholders after such an event. Yeah, I mean, similarly, I guess to flood is, is that building those relationships. And what we've done is built that trust and relationships with some community leaders who are kind of influential in the community. I'm not sure I can comment on on the, the um, marsh leakage, but Just I think listening to their concerns, demonstrate what you've done to mitigate, or if you haven't, then demonstrate the why and just be transparent and and open and and honest as you can. For us, in different communities, we've had different levels of trust depending on on the project. So these are things that take a long time and different angles to build that trust. There's this public perception that the water is not well-managed and mistrust of water management. I feel like changing public perception in some cases now is more challenging than ever. But And I can understand um, people's... Uh, people's outrage at this sewage leak though that you described like I can definitely understand why they would be concerned I imagine it will take a, a lot of different minds at the municipality to come together to rebuild that trust what do you think residents can do to push their city to make changes regarding flood resilience well uh, in Calgary what has been really successful is we've had citizens organize themselves for a cause. For example, we have uh, a group that primarily concerned with the Elbow River. So they've taken that on and done some really strong advocacy for mitigation on the Elbow River. There's a group that's concerned or a couple of groups that are or self-organizing for their own neighborhoods because they have certain issues within their neighborhood. And as these flood action groups come together and and self-organize and and get educated and work with us, we we communicate with them a lot and they communicate with the province. They are are great advocates for flood resiliency and they keep the issues alive and they keep their communities informed and they keep connected with us, the the city and, and the province to keep the pressure on. The best way I would say would be to organize So do they email you or write you letters or show up to town halls? All of the above, all of that. And they'll ask for um, more education or more communication or more uh, meetings with us, like one-on-one meetings. And we try and keep them informed through, uh, through our websites and through emails and through meetings. I was wondering if 
you have a like a policy that charges based on the amount of permeable surface. For example, like parking lots will be charged more for stormwater than individual residences that have turf, for example. I was wondering if you have any thoughts. Yeah, we know that municipalities are moving more towards that kind of a rate model, mm-hmm. and we're currently studying it. Mm-hmm. So studying different rate models that that take that kind of thing, like imperviousness or property size or use into consideration to determine what those fees should be. We're looking at it right now. We just wanted to thank you so much for coming back. And I really learned a lot about flood resilience today and what you guys are doing. It's awesome. So happy to share. Yeah, it was awesome talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us today on CityCast. That was Tanya Lang, Watershed Planning Strategist for the City of Calgary on how Calgary is building flood resilience. We'll be taking a hiatus from this segment, Resilient Cities, until further notice. But join us next time on CityCast to learn, with us students, how to collectively build a greener, more inclusive, more vibrant Hamilton. Resilient Cities was developed by Ananya Yadav, Henry Challen, Daria Demerchi, and Wendy Zhang. Special thanks to all our podcast guests, our instructors at City Labs Master in Residence, and Arlen Leeming, Senior Project Manager of Sustainability with the City of Hamilton, for all their support and guidance. We'll see you soon with another episode.